from the Cumberland Plateau and the University of the South. This is the Swami Review Podcast. From the Ralston Listening Room, my name is Carlos Ayas Pons, Editorial Assistant at the Swanee Review. Today we are joined by fiction writer and essayist C.J. Hauser. C.J. teaches creative writing and literature at Colgate University. Her first novel, The From Aways, was published in 2014, and her second novel, Family of Origin, was published in 2019. But today, we'll be talking primarily about her newest book and her first feature-length work of nonfiction, The Crane Wife, a memoir and essays. Welcome to the podcast, CJ. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm extremely jazzed to be on the domain and in this beautiful listening room. Amazing. I'm I'm so glad you're here. The Crane Wife has been my favorite book this year. It feels so prescient to me and a bunch of the things happening in my life right now. So thank you so much for putting it out into the world. That is the loveliest thing that I think a person could say about a book, that it like spoke to them in this moment. And so I'm glad my little paper airplane found you. You're here now for the Swanee Writers Conference. How have the past two-ish weeks been it so is. far, this literary immersion? And- it is a literary immersion. It is. It's at once like the most... I don't know, inspiring artistic space and like intellectual field day of just meeting brilliant people who do work I really love and meeting new artists. But it's also like summer camp. You would think it would be a bit head spinning, but I actually love it that you go from being like, okay, so like here's this technique for creating dialogue that does X, Y, Z, or like here are ethical issues in nonfiction. And then it's like, but now do you want to go swimming? And <laughs> it's like, yes, I do. Now I do want to go swimming. So I love it here. I love that. I really hope that at some point later on in my career, I can come back and be a participant in the you conference. must. <laughs> now, the title essay of the collection appeared in the Paris Review on the Daily back in 2019 and sparked a massive response. It went viral. The way you wrestle with love and self-love in the piece instantly resonated with so many folks, myself included. Was the full memoir in the works when the essay was published, or did that essay lead you to write more about your experiences and relationships? Yeah, it's definitely the second one. I was working on a novel that hopefully I will return to someday, um, but I was working on fiction. I was a novelist. I never thought I was going to write more in nonfiction than just an essay here or there. And it was shocking and exciting when all of a sudden the internet was sort of screaming like, where is the book that this essay goes to? And it's like, I haven't written a book. There is no book. And I took a long time to think about what it would mean to to write more nonfiction. I really didn't want to do the sort of thing where it's like, oh, someone writes something on the internet, everyone screams, and then they sort of, I don't want to say capitalize on it, but they expand it because of the hoopla. I wanted to write because I wanted to write and not in a hoopla-oriented way. So usually we do a a reading early on. Does a section from Blood sound okay to start? The Black Cat, 2006. A gang of girls was going to the Black Cat for Britpop night so we could dance to the Smiths and the Sex Pistols and smoke and wear too much eyeliner and not give a shit about the boys or the fact that in another few months, most of us would be graduated and adrift. I was going because I wanted to dance, but maybe also because of a tall girl named Maggie who wore big glasses and button-down shirts with the sleeves rolled up in a let's-get-down-to-business manner that filled me with longing. 
In our theater meetings, Maggie took copious notes like I took copious notes, and she always seemed to be looking up from those notes to stare at me at the precise moment that I was looking up to stare at her. But then we didn't make it to the black cat, because there was a snowstorm. Eventually, we would kiss. Eventually, we would go to bed together. Eventually, I would fail to say bisexual, would fail to say queer, would fail to speak the truth and come out the way I should have, would fail her. Eventually, I'll tell you this whole story. We were so disappointed by the snow that canceled plans, and so we all went to the same tired party we've been trying to avoid and went through the motions of having a good time. I went out to the balcony to smoke and watch the snow come down. There was a small crush of people out there. I spotted Maggie. She was not wearing glasses. She was wearing a black tank top. She waved at me from across the balcony, and I waved back. Then we stared at each other like we did in meetings, and she lifted up her shirt a little. On her stomach, she'd written, in red lipstick, I'd rather be at the black cat. I love that first essay and all of the the vignettes that it feels like such a perfect introduction to the to the book as a whole. These little like paragraph to page long vignettes about your love life foregrounded with your family's love life. It melts history and emotion together with those tiny little ineffable moments of connection or disconnection that stick around for years and years. When in the compilation process did you write this piece? Actually, so that's the, I think the oldest piece in the book. I keep saying I don't write nonfiction, and I'm like, but actually I had written this thing. Um, it it was when I was in grad school, I was in a fiction workshop, and I was up for my submission, and I was just completely blocked, and I couldn't figure out what to write, which is not a problem I normally have. And these stories that are now in, in the essay of Blood just kept harassing me, essentially, and they were asking to be fictionalized and asking to be written about. And I was like, I don't want to write about my life. And so I had this idea that if I just wrote them all out, I would sort of exercise them from my body and from my mind. And I was like, and then I can get down to business writing fiction. But I just kept writing and writing. And I think they're so short because I was just trying to get them all out. But then once I had written them, looking at them together is when I started thinking of them of them as like a hope chest, which was the original title of the essay of like, tiny things that have been passed down in my family in terms of stories that we sort of give to the next generation about like, this is what love looks like. This is what the family story is. And then putting my own misadventures in there too. I don't know. I thought it was an interesting way to start thinking about the stories that we tell ourselves about how love acts. That's lovely. How love acts. I mean, the complicated machinations of love or a lot of what the the collection as a whole sort of circulate around and, and try and talk about not just love with others but love with oneself love with the world love with places do you think that makes this first piece sort of a microcosm of the collection as a whole in that sense yeah i think that when i decided that i wanted to really do this project that I wanted to sort of think more broadly about these ideas. I was thinking of Blood, the first essay, as a microcosm, as a kind of posing of a question. I think that that essay is very much like, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, what am I supposed to make of all this? What sort of a life am I going to make in light of the legacies of all these things? And so if that's the question being posed, I hope the rest of the book is not answering necessarily. Uh, I'm, I'm never really a definitive answer kind of person. But wiggling around 
in the spaces of that question to find other kinds of wisdom. It's sort of, it gives space and time to these questions and room to explore, not the answers, like you said, maybe there aren't answers, but the ways in which we can understand them best. Yeah, I think that a lot of these pieces are questing. I hope that each of them has sort of like a satisfying arc of starting in one place and 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 taking us to a new one and making a lot of meaning along the way. But I think sometimes we conflate making meaning and finding ways to have life experiences feel meaningful with sort of solving things or settling things. So it's like, and now it is done. It is finished. We put it away. We understand. And at least for me, my life has never worked that way. The one essay that I found that stands out sort of from the rest in terms of how it relates to these larger questions of love and romance is The Man Behind the Curtain. Yeah. But I still find it to be most definitely about love and familial love, ultimately, with your grandfather, your shared adoration of Judy Garland and The Wizard of Oz, and ultimately different relationships to the realities of Frank L. Baum and The American Dream. It's such a joyous and complicated ride. Uh, how do you reconcile the scale of these themes with the intimacy of your relationship with your grandfather and the text itself? Yeah, I think that essay felt so necessarily part of this book to me because it's a, it's about how he, my grandfather, basically convinced my sister and I that the land of Oz was real through stagecraft and storytelling and general pizzazz, magic tricks. I think that it's sort of the origin story for me of loving the fantastical and the fictive more than real life, quote unquote, real life. And and I don't know, I think I've always found the daily reality of things like marvelous sometimes, but other times it's like, well, why doesn't everything like shine a little brighter? Why isn't everything, why isn't the dialogue a little snappier? Why isn't this more storified, I guess? That's a piece that really has to do with where my fantastical notions of what love or life are supposed to look like came from. And then I hope it's also a reckoning with like, actually, there's like ethical work here to be done, too. And and Baum was, I don't know, a horrible racist and wrote all of these op-eds, especially about Native peoples, that are just horrific to read and horrific to consider being like an opinion that was being disseminated in newspapers at the time. Not surprising, but no less horrific for that. And so like, what does it mean to reconcile this like dreamland that he created as an author with the actual like reality of his life and the politics of his life? And I think, yeah, that sort of tension between the reality and the fantastical is something that all along the scale, as you say, is, is something I've always struggled with. And I think we're all struggling with so often these days. I found it your answer really interesting how you described this essay as sort of an origin story for your relationship with love and what the fantastical, magical parts of it. Do you think that that is, uh, this is perhaps reductive, but do you think that that's something that made your relationship with love all the more beautiful or all the more difficult or something in the middle? Oh, all of the above. I think, um, I don't know, I've been having this conversation with a lot of friends who are parents these days about like how much magic to sort of conjure for their children. I have a friend who 
as these fairies that visit her son's room and the, the like house plants there and they leave him little notes and and he he loves it. He loves the fairies. The, the fairies tried to say they were moving. And then I, I'm pretty sure he was like, no, they're in the garden now. They're still here because he loves it so much. And we were sort of talking about like, in what ways is this a boon to a person's life? And in what ways does it maybe set you up for disappointment when there are no more fairies? I mean, maybe the dream is just to keep having fairies all the time. But I think it's been like that for me in love. Like, I think I'm pretty good at looking for the magical and sort of finding magic in the everyday. That's like kind of my coping mechanism for being actually kind of a sad, sacky person on the inside. And I think that's a beautiful way to be. But also, it makes it harder to sit with the discomfort of, I don't know, just what daily daily grind looks like. Mm-hmm. No, I, I find myself to be somewhat of a sad sacky person as well, <laughs> especially in, in terms of love. So it's comforting to A, hear that and to know that you wrote this book that makes love so magical, even in its most painful iterations. My friend Olivia calls it, (laughs) wait, I've got to get this right. Olivia said, pessimist hardware, optimist software. (laughs) Mm. And that's sort of where I'm at. I love that. Yeah, she's wise. I'll have to keep that in mind. (laughs) So much of this book is informed by your time as a theater kid. And as a fellow theater kid, this totally enchanted me. How do you look back on that time, high school or any time you did theater afterwards and its influence on you as a as a writer? Yeah, it's like, who was it? Someone at the conference the other night, I think it was Elena Passarello was saying like, I was a theater kid and I guess I'm still a theater kid. Maybe I'm just a theater adult. (laughs) But I was never an acting person. That's terrifying to me to be on stage like that. And so mostly I was a backstage person, but the thing that thrilled me about it was like, we're making something together. And and sure, there were sort of faculty advisors and people who helped and all of that, but like more than any other part of my life, it felt like we, as like a collective of people who are young, were just like dreaming up our own world and sort of building it. And sometimes it was great and sometimes it was spectacularly bad. But I don't know, we were doing the drilling and the welding and we were finding the music and we were doing the lights and we were deciding, I don't know, how to think about these plays and and just making something with other people is like a great human pleasure. Um, And so I think I kind of got hooked on it through the theater and through that sort of unsupervised state of making. How do you think that translates to to writing now, which I suppose is generally considered to be a solitary practice and somewhat personal one? I suppose when you bring your work to to your colleagues and friends and ask them to read it and give opinions on it, I don't know if you do that, but it, I, that's something that I tend to do. Does that, in a sense, make it more communal? Is is that where the the theater mirrors off? Yeah, I think so. But I also think that it's like, even when you're making something with like the cast and crew, you're still in this sort of like veiled state, this like cloaked private practice space. And then there's the like, ta-da moment. But the ta-da is hardly ever the part I have the fondest memories of. It's always the like, oh man, it's going to take so much work for this one beautiful moment of a thing. And like, I don't know, writing something 
when it works out or when it doesn't is is very much like that where you're just sort of <laughs> building building in privacy with a few trusted people i definitely i have so many readers in my life that i'm lucky to swap work with um i have a an agent and an editor who i've been working with for a long time now and they are a beautiful collaborative hive mind with me especially with this book that i don't know we sort of built it together in a way they were always bouncing ideas off of me and i was bouncing ideas off of them yeah, I think it definitely does mirror theater, both in terms of the the length of the prep for the one ta-da, but also, yeah, that communal spirit of like, look, we built a thing. In the memoir, three essays denote a three-act structure and are separated into the first three sections of the book. Each one circulated around a, a different play or musical, A Midsummer Night's Dream, then The Fantastics, and finally Man of La Mancha. Can you speak to the ways in which these three stage productions communicate to each other across your work? Yeah, it's the story of sort of my first great love. And he was like king of the theater kids. <laughs> Probably still is. I tell the story through those three plays. And I think the idea, too, is like the idea of the three acts and the idea of like especially in The Fantastics, which is a musical I grew up loving and has a complicated, it's, da- it's dated now in ways that make it hard to, to love, but I don't know, I still do. But the point is that the first act is such a happy love story, and then they get sort of frozen. And then the second act, you're like, well, what's going to happen now? And it's like, oh, you actually have to live your life. Like, here's the part of the play that shows that the curtain falling down just as you've decided, like, yes, we're in love, we're going to do it, that, like, there's so much life that keeps happening. So I love that show for the way it sort of makes that explicit and and a metaphor. And so I think for me, writing about that relationship was about pushing writing that relationship past the point of, it was my first great love, here we all are singing our great musical number and clasping hands and going, ta-da, But like, what happens in the second act? What happens in the third act? Like, what does it look like when the rubber meets the road of like actually living your life with a person? And it's usually more complicated as real life so often is. Mm -hmm. No, I often think about the, that passage where you talk about all the actors during the intermission holding the pose of the happily ever after and how impossible and unsustainable that is. And I, I had seen the Fantastics once before towards the end of my time at high school, but I didn't quite make that connection the way that you do in the essay. And it just like blew the whole show open for me, all my memories of it. Oh, I love that. I think it's such a marvelous show for that. Like in the in that moment, it's like you return to the theater after intermission, you've had your snack, you've had your drink, and then the curtain comes up and they're like pretending that they're still in this posture that you've seen them in at the end of the first act. And they're like, their backs hurt and they're wiggling and they're going to fall out of it. And just that alone, that like pantomime is so powerful to me. Mm -hmm. Would you mind reading some from Act Two, The Fantastics? Yeah, absolutely. In December, the boy comes home from college for Christmas. Is he still your boyfriend? You've decided to keep dating long distance and you talk on the phone all the time. But when you think about it now, it's clear he was fucking other people and you were not but you believe he is your boyfriend hard enough to reject the advances of the boys at school who are probably infinitely better choices. But do any of them want to take the train into the recently attacked city to see a musical with you over winter break? No, they do not. 
and so they don't stand a chance. You want to see the Fantastics with the boy because he is also a theater kid, had been, in fact, the king of the theater kids. The first time you'd ever properly seen him was before you even started dating, when he played Harold Hill in the middle school production of The Music Man, and right away you loved him so fucking much. The boy has never seen The Fantastics, and you think of it as terribly romantic, and so you get tickets. The lights go down in the little theater, a moment that never doesn't thrill you, and the overture plays. It gives you goosebumps. You know all the lyrics to the show by heart, so it shouldn't come as a surprise, but when the narrator eventually starts singing the musical's most famous song, you hadn't seen it coming. Try to remember the kind of September when life was slow and oh so mellow. Try to remember the kind of September when grass was green and grain was yellow. You cry, and the boy cries, and the whole audience and most of the cast and even the harpist cries. The song hasn't changed, but everything around it has. The Fantastics is a musical in two parts. The first act consists of an entire happy love story, at the end of which the cast assembles into an intricate flocking arrangement resembling a family portrait, and from these poses, they conclude a great swelling number called Happy Ending. When the lights come up on Act 2, the cast appears frozen in these same postures, as if you had left them there all intermission. Several ominous minor keys are played as they fidget and grimace and attempt to hold together their tableau. Then, the girl picks an imaginary plum from a tree in her father's garden. She bites it and says, This plum is too ripe. The girl and the boy split up and go out to see the world. I'd like to be not evil, but a little worldly-wise, the girl sings. They suffer, they learn, they return home, and they are different now, but they fall in love again. Thank you. Our podcast is recorded in the William Ralston Listening Room, located inside DuPont Library at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. This room is equipped with state-of-the-art audio components and over 30,000 recordings. Classes, listening sessions, and opera screenings are hosted by student curators throughout the school year. To visit or find out more about the Ralston Room, visit their website at library.sewanee.edu backslash Ralston. Theater isn't the only reoccurring experience or foundation for understanding love and growth in this collection. You spend a lot of time reflecting on houses and, and homes, your place of dwelling. The essay is The Second Mist of Winter, Unwalling Jackson's Castle, and The Fox Farm address this topic, but it never feels like you're treading the same territory more than once. It's astounding. How do you conceptualize essays that seem to have a shared root but end up branching out in such unexpected and revelatory ways. I think I'm just really obsessed with houses. <laughs> I think that because this book is so much about the narrative shapes of stories that we tell ourselves and what does it mean to live inside like a way of being, a story of how a life should look that doesn't suit you. I mean, I think metaphorically in my brain, I, I think of it as a space. A house is a space that you live inside the way a story is a space that you live inside. 
the idea of being in a story in a house that feels haunted in some way is a thing I love to think about. Or the idea of a story that has room for many characters instead of just like, I don't know, the two lovers at the heart and then where is everyone else? So often in a love story, I always think like, what the supporting cast is here is a matter of convenience. Like they're almost like extras. So in the Fox Farm in particular, I'm thinking about a house and a story of a life where there's so many characters and they all have their different bits and parts and no one is the lead. It's just sort of a, we have different ways of being in the space. But mostly I just love thinking about houses. <laughs> no, I, I love that conception of a, of a home. It's a, a communal place as opposed to a, a personal place, but not in a, in a way that sort of treads on the personal, but in a way that accentuates it, that celebrates it especially in communion with others. It's funny because maybe it's because I'm on a college campus right here right now. As we speak, I'm thinking about this, but I live in a tiny college town. And I think that a lot of people, when they come to visit, they get very nostalgic if they're people who got to go to college about that time of life. And I think the thing that people are really missing is that like community, communal living aspect of it. I was talking with my friend Brian the other day and he was like, we used to live in these like sort of small community structures. And that was the thing. And so many people still do, obviously. But I think in a lot of America these days, that's not how we live. And I think we sort of miss it. And college is the closest we get to like, yeah, I live in a house and my best friend's down the hall. And I'm going to bump into someone when I'm getting breakfast. And I can spontaneously call and be like, what are you doing? And obviously the pressures of of a life that has more work and more jobs and things like that later on is also part of it. But I, I think of a college living experience as a kind of communal house that people mourn when they leave. So I'm trying to recreate that in adulthood. <laughs> I think that that's something that I'll probably feel like it, feel like pursuing once I'm out of Swanee as well, because I hate not having my closest friends yeah, it's a tragedy of adult life so often that we fling our, we all go off and we do our own beautiful adventures by choice or by necessity. And my long distance friendships are so precious to me and so real and we take care of each other and we find ways to do it. But it's it's different from the friends who just like show up at my house <laughs> with a piece of lemon cake in the morning and they're like, eat this cake before you do that thing. You always forget to eat and then they leave. And that's a very different kind of intimacy. That a sort of casual intimacy that's, I find, the most beautiful kind in a certain way. Just like being in a room with someone and not even doing the same thing, but doing your own thing together. Yeah. It, or... Or just knowing from your presence or from their presence. But just the proximity of it, I think, is really... And just knowing people are close, whether it's in a room or in town or whatever, it feels it feels different. I think the pandemic was an interesting time for that kind of intimacy because it made seeing people so much less spontaneous and and relaxed, of course, than it had been. And so it had to be this great planned production in a way to get to just see someone and then it felt like you had to make it count but of course as you're saying and I feel too like the moments that are less scripted that are more like here I am with cake here I am just doing work in this room with you that's that's where real intimacy really grows for me 
at the end of this marvelous collection, it feels like you've given us almost two endings in Uncoupling and Siberian Watermelon. The first feels like a sort of emotional climax to all of these love stories that you've given us so far. A heart-rending reflection on separating desires from expectations. I can't remember the last time I had to put down an essay and take a lap not once but three times. Oh, I think I told you this. I love that. It gave me a perspective on my own romantic dreams that honestly scares the hell out of me. But uh, that's all the more credit to you and the piece and its power. And then Siberian Watermelon gives us a send-off about sort of the, the nature of love stories as, as a whole, the tragedy and imperfection, or what make love so true and love stories so beautiful. This question partly returns to what I asked uh, about the Oz essay, but how do you achieve this incredible balance between intimacy and analysis? Intimacy and analysis. Do you know a writer who I just met here at the conference, Charlie, was saying in workshop the other day that like intellectualizing something can be, for example, a grief response, a love response, an emotional response. And I'm going to be thinking about that for a while. And I think for me, when I have huge feelings, which is every minute of every day, <laughs> sometimes in life I've tried to cope with them by like trying to intellectualize or analyze them. And it's like, if I can just get to the bottom of how I feel about Scully and Mulder and the X-Files, surely I'll understand this thing about myself. And it's it's a deflection. It's a, it's a way of hiding. But I think it's also a way of taking apart all the pieces of a big feeling or a big thought and laying them on the table and the analysis and like sort of pinging it off of art, pinging my feelings off of art is a way for me to sort of see it laid out and sort of make sense of it. So that's part of it. But I think, too, with those two pieces, I'm sorry that Uncoupling scared the hell out of you. It scared the hell out of me, too, to write it. I think in that piece, I was really thinking about, like, in my own life, what are the story parts that I assumed had to go together? Like, I, And the whole book is sort of unpacking where these expectations come from and where and like it's not like a I blame the Disney Corporation. It's not like that. It's like it's from it's me. It's from inside of me. But I have these narrative expectations of like, oh, like you fall in love with one person and then you have a ritual to say that you'll love each other forever until you die. And then you make a family and then that cycle repeats. And there are parts of that that I'm interested in, but I'm not interested in it as one whole kit and caboodle. For me, the analysis of that feeling of, I don't know what I want, what do I need, what will I do? Like, and analyzing it and separating the threads of like, okay, like, yes, I like having committed relationships with one person. That's a thing I like. And like, yes, I think I would like to be a parent, but only in these ways and not these other ways. And separating it out so I can make each choice on its own because I am of an age where that whole package deal thing is either is neither available to me nor is it appealing to me the analysis there helped me gain clarity about the feelings if that makes sense no absolutely and a lot of times when i talk to my friends who are sort of analyzing very emotionally charged situations that analysis instead of a manner in which we enrich and understand ourselves becomes a way to compartmentalize uh, our feelings. So how do you avoid 
that part of of analysis, the part that squares us away instead of letting us be free. Yeah, I love that question. I don't know if I'm doing a particularly good job. I'm really sort of a mess. But I I think that I think that I'm perpetually in a cycle and I think this cycle is very much represented in the book of being like, "Aha, I've understood understood a thing. I've analyzed a thing." And then 2 minutes later, it's like, "Oh shit, lost it again." Like and it's and just the reality of an emotional state and like a, a feeling is not a fact, quote unquote, but like uh, a feeling is a big thing and it's real and it's valid and you can't make it go away by analyzing it. And so I'm in this perpetual cycle of just like learning to sit with feelings, learning to value the feelings, even if they're uncomfortable and understanding that they're not forever. And then going into that hyperanalytical mode and gaining some sort of clarity, but certainly not solving anything. And then the feeling comes in and washes it away again upon the beach. I I have a cycle I'm in, but it's not a solution. It's just a way I seem to be living. It seems like just how we have to muddle through each and every day. I mean, whenever I'm at my lowest point and I'm calling my parents in tears, they're always like, it's one day at a time. The yeah. next, you just have to get through today. Yeah, it's only today. Yeah. <laughs> and these feelings, even if they last for days and days on end, they'll there'll be breaks. Yeah, there'll be times where you forget, or there there'll be times where you have a breakthrough and are able to be happy in your position for a little bit. Yeah, I think a lot. I had this boss a million years ago, who she was always going on crash diets, but but truly it was about more than that. And she'd be like, "Okay, I'm eating healthy today," and the office was set up so she was always like walking in circles around all of us, and she was like a very loud, brilliant woman. And then at a certain point. Like when things got too chaotic, work got too hard, someone was behaving badly and the day had just sort of gone haywire. She would like grab M&Ms off of my secretary's desk and eat them. And she'd be like, today is a wash. It's a wash. And then like the rest of the day was just sort of over. And I just think about her doing that all the time. There are some days where it's like, yeah, we're doing it. We're working. We're trying hard. Our best intentions. And then sometimes you're just like, it's a wash. I'm eating the M&Ms. We're going to muddle through today and tomorrow we're going to take it from the top. (laughs) And I think that ultimately these two poles, the intimacy and analysis, they're the core concept behind the two main structures of the collection. Or memoirs are couched in intimacy and essays are couched in analysis. Do you think this dichotomy in your collection or just in in memoirs and essays in general, do you think that dichotomy is a gradient or something else entirely? How do you think that oh. those two poles I love that so much. I hadn't thought to connect it to the subtitle in that way. And the subtitle is sort of a publishing reality more than it is an artistic choice. And I think there's so much pressure these days where people are like, no, it's not essays. It's a memoir. I love essay collections, but I am a strange person. And I think it is because we think of the essay, like you're saying, as being that analytical self. So I was very adamant for a while that I was writing an essay collection. And I'm like, yes, I am thinking. I am here thinking on the page. And then everyone in my life who read these pages, they're like, there's a lot about you in here. And it's feeling in like the arc of your life and how you learned things and changed and messed up and then did it again. And that's maybe the memoir part of it. And I was sort of in denial about the fact that that's what I was up to. And maybe that's that urge to sort of hyper-intellectualize and hide from the feelings, to try to solve the feelings with thoughts. 
But I feel like you've given me a new lease on this this memoir and essays as a genre, as this kind of blending of the two things together. I think that's a really lovely way to think about why we need this more hybrid term these days, because that's sort of the space that so many of us are living in. I'm so glad we've been talking about these feelings and and these relationships, but you also have a number of, of pieces in here. We've touched on it with the, the theater essays, but you have a number of essays that are largely referential to Shirley Jackson or Rebecca or X-Files and... Philadelphia Story? Yes, Philadelphia Story. <laughs> Do you think that these materials, these works of art, are supplements or teaching instructional materials for how we we learn about love or do you think that they are ways that we are mediums through which we understand our own relationship to love are they teaching or are they more prescribing describing oh yeah i think it's both i think because the art that i'm talking about in the book is largely things i like imprinted on at a young age I think I maybe didn't have the wherewithal, as I I like to think I sometimes do now when I read something or I watch something, to be like, oh, yeah, like this is making me think my own thoughts and and ask my own questions about my own life. But back then, I was absolutely not doing that. I was like, Catherine Hepburn, show me how to do this. (laughs) Dana Scully, show me how to do this. And I think when you're still figuring out, when you're like forming your identity, not to say that ever ends, I think that those things can carry a lot of weight and really shape the way you see the world. And I think those essays are about how that did not go particularly well for me, but we all do it. And of course we do. I think, too, we're more porous than we want to admit. (laughs) And we carry around all these things that we watch and see and people we know and stories that we hear with us all the time. And I think that's another reason the sort of, to go back to the memoir and essays thing, to ask our, I don't know, our writers, our leaders, our whoever they are, to like separate those parts of themselves and compartmentalize the intellectual from the feeling. For me, I can't really do it. I, I they they're all part of. I'm I'm always myself. I'm not good at like putting on a special outfit for going to work and being like, this is, this is work, CJ. And this is like, I can only ever be myself in all those spaces. And for me, that feels good. It is not what we ask people to do in, forgive me, capitalism. Um, I, I think that so often we're asked to sort of separate out like the part of you that's a feeling person from the part of you that's a working, thinking, intellectualizing, doing person. I don't know. I I like the idea of letting people be their whole messy selves in a lot of different realms. I think that's really important. (laughs) What you're talking about, uh, the compartmentalizing that that is asked of us in capitalism or in any other one of these power structures that sort of confine us, seems to be a sort of vehicle for dehumanization that doesn't let us be an entire human in scenarios where it's not ideal or that it's not profitable. Yeah. But literature and, and essays and memoirs seem to be a place where that we get at least a little more freedom in that, do you think? I think there is a little bit more, but I do think that there are books where it's like, okay, just tell us about your life and how you felt. And there are books where it's like, 
okay, just tell me the ideas. Don't bring yourself into it. But my favorite books are the ones that bring them together. My One of my favorite books that I talk about in my book is The Most Human Human by Brian Christian. And it's at once like a brilliant book about AI and the history of AI and like what language does. But it's also about like him as a person, as like a character in the book who is having these experiences and grappling with these questions in a human way. And I think an author being willing to do that on the page is actually helpful intellectually as well as emotionally. I I understand, of course, that in life it is not always a I'm not going to go into my classroom where I'm teaching and be like, I just had a horrible conversation on the phone with someone. Like that's not appropriate and that's a bad boundary. And so I'm not saying that people should just while out all the time. But I think, especially in teaching spaces, which is my professional realm, to pretend that we're reading and we're writing and we're working and that we're not also people who are like living through a pandemic and trying to pay our bills and like maybe had a fight with a friend or maybe got good news and like all of that is there and it doesn't need to be spoken out loud if it's not the right space but to just like assume that people are bringing a lot of themselves to the table i think that's humane <laughs> Yeah, I mean, no part of us exists in a vacuum. Yeah. It's all interconnected. To end, I've selected a section from each of those concluding essays, Uncoupling and Siberian Watermelon. Would you mind reading one? Your choice. Yeah, I'll read from Siberian Watermelon, which is about my dad, who I love very much. And it's a sort of ending beat to the book about a new way I'm trying to think about drama. (laughs) It is not only students who find us writers so depressing. Our parents also find us inexplicably morbid. My father has said to me more than once that he wishes I would write something lovely and funny. You're very lovely and funny in real life, he says, but that's not the sort of thing you write. In regarding happiness, it is Charles Baxter's mother who introduces the question of happiness in storytelling. I just have this one question, she said, digging for a cigarette in a mostly empty pack. My question is, when are you going to write a happy poem? 37 years later, I cannot remember what I replied, but I hope I didn't say what probably occurred to me. Well, okay, when I'm happy, then I'll write a happy poem. What I hope I did not tell my father was, when I have enough distance to laugh at the world we seem to be living in, then I'll write something lovely and funny. What I hope I did not say to him was, but I'm writing about love, and that's not what a love story is. I don't know, he might have said back, if I'd replied, already going back to doing the Sunday Times crossword in pen. It just seems like you could try. What to make of these parental wishes? I think it has less to do with art than it does what they fear might be true of us. The way our expectations for what a story, what a life should be, makes us seem strange or sad or far distant from the children we once were, or perhaps far distance from the generation that raised us. I really wanted to end the book in a place that was sort of saying, this is a book of stories and a lot of drama from my life, but that's not what I think a good life necessarily looks like these days, at least for me. It's not like, oh, I have so many stories to tell. And I think the thing I've really come around to is like small, good, slow-growing things like the watermelons of the title, like the love of my father, 
are love stories too, even if they don't have a beautiful narrative arc to them, because they're just so lovely and stable that they just stay. So that's what I'm trying to come around to these days. The little things, the the not non-explosive yeah. things can still be lovely and romantic. Yeah. I think that's a really beautiful place to, to end on. Thank you so much for chatting with me, CJ. Thank you so much for this book. It, it's truly my favorite book this year, and uh, I cannot wait to see what's next. Thank you so much for having me here to have a lovely conversation surrounded by music and stories in the library. Mm -hmm. Thank you for listening to the Swanee Review Podcast. If you like what you heard, the best way to support the Swanee Review, America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly, is by purchasing a print and online subscription at www.theswanereview.com. To discover what's happening at the review, visit our website or follow us on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages at Swanee Review. Until next time, this is the Swanee Review, new since 1892.